Okay. Those of you that have already looked in your bulletin see that there are two whopping pages full of text. Becky came up to me and says, are you going to read all that? I wasn't, but now I just might. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, Becky. Everybody's like, oh, thanks, Becky. All right, here's what we're going to do. Um, well, let, let's back up. We'll get to that in a second. Look, I've witnessed five times in my life in a very up-close-and-personal way uh, the pain of childbearing, right? Now, I am not an Amazon Valley husband. I will, not, I will tell you that I have not felt before, during, or after one drop one molecule, one cell of physical pain in me. Now, it was a little different from my wife, but it's not about her, it's about me, right? So here's the deal. Though we had different places, we were at different places in feeling pain in childbirth, right? She's at a much different place than I was, right? We were both on the same page with the purpose of pain at childbirth, all right? I had a job to do. The purpose of pain and childbirth focused me. It gave me a job. I'm the coach. And my job is to get her through the pain to the purpose of the pain, right? Now, her purpose in pain uh, also kept her going. It was the inspiration when she was exhausted. The purpose of pain kept her enduring amidst amidst unbearable pain, right? The purpose of pain even prevented her from giving up. And the purpose of pain even kept her from being swallowed up by the monster of pain. And then when the purpose of the pain in childbirth finally arrived, joy unspeakable surpassing happiness and the pain of childbirth seemed light and momentary in comparison the pain was just pain it hurt But it wasn't a godlike monster that threatened to drag you away into dark places. Now, how would childbearing pain be different if there was no child at the end of it? Uh, What if there was no purpose to the pain? What if the conversation went like this? Jeff, the pain is unbearable, overwhelming. I'm sorry, honey. Just hang in there. Why? For what am I hanging in there? What's the purpose of all this pain? Well, I um, I don't know. I guess it's pain. There's only pain. Now, the book of Job has not shied away, as we have seen, from entering into real life, has it? The book of Job actually runs ahead of us into real life and runs ahead into asking the most difficult questions you could ask. In fact, the book of Job makes us all uncomfortable. If we would have our way, we would say, don't ask that question. Don't raise your hand. Don't you dare do that. I want to stay comfortable. 
But the book of Job doesn't allow us to do that. The book of Job loves real life. The book of Job presses into the real nitty gritty and messes of real life. And the book of Job boldly asks this question. Is Job's pain, is your pain purposeless? No point. No purpose. Just purpose pounding pain. So there's grief. Is it grief without purpose? You lose a loved one. You lose a spouse. You lose a child. You lose a parent. Grief upon grief, no purpose. Is it desperation without purpose? Is it despair and depression without purpose? Is it feelings of overwhelmingly Feeling anxious, shame, humiliation, failure without purpose? Is it physical torture and torment without purpose? So is pain a monster? Is it a threatening, swallowing, destroying monster that just threatens to drag you away kicking and screaming into the dark places? Well, welcome to Job, chapter 12 through 14. This is Job's longest speech ever until the end. So he says more here than he said so far in 12 verses or 12 chapters. And so when we get to the end, he's going to go a little longer. But now this is the end of the first speech cycle. So we are wrapping up. These are the last words to the first speech cycle that involved three friends, three friends all trying to relate to pain and suffering. Three friends all trying to deal with God and pain and suffering. Three friends all wrestling with real life stuff. And Job's the last one to speak in this next cycle. And then we got two more. And again, keep praying because I do not know what we're going to do. We keep, we're not going to be repetitive. But I, as I was telling someone before, I was when I entered this book, I thought, gosh, it's going to be the... When I anticipated Job, the same message, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And... I have, been, I have been surprised. So maybe the second and third cycle will surprise us too. If not, we'll go quicker <laughs> to get to the end. All right? If it's repetitive, we'll just start jumping a lot of passages. All right. In Job 12 through 14, what's happening here is Job is processing his pain. And he's doing it right in front of all of us. We get an inside look at one man processing pain. And in doing so, the question arises amidst this process, is pain purposeless or is pain a monster, an uncontrollable monster? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Job 12, 1 through 6. Uh, here's, here's what I, I got to give you an outline of this or it doesn't make any sense. What's going to happen is he's going to address his friends in 12, 1 through 12, chapter 12, all the way to 13, 20. He's talking to his friends. Now, what he's doing in the first part of his friends is he's going to address how they're treating him. And seven, and that's going to be 1 through 6. And 7 through 12, he's actually going to be mimicking their words to him, back to them. Have you ever done that? You've done that before? 
you know, that's what he's doing. All right. So that's why if you want to, you, it's the quotation mark. If you got verse seven, look at the quotation mark. He's using their words because you is second person singular it means they're talking to him. If it was you uh, plural, it would be him talking to them. But he's, he's repeating, but the beasts, but ask the beasts and will they teach you? You know, I mean, he's going that kind of sarcasm. All right. Now. In 13 through 25 of chapter 12, he's unleashing this cosmic power of God that he's already done before in chapter 9 through 10, but he adds a different twist to it, all to build his argument, all right? Then we get down to 13, uh, and he's moving to addressing them very specifically, telling them what they're like. So be prepared for some pretty straightforward, you know, kind of little punch in the nose kind of stuff. Then we get to 20, and now it shifts where he's talking to God, and that's how it wraps out the end of the the reading, okay? Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, so I'm going to give you a sample of every one of these sections. Here we go, 12, 1 through 6. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. In other words, this is one of his sarcasm at its best. No doubt, you know, you are wisdom incarnate, friends. You speak wisdom. You walk wisdom right? But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? In other words, the stuff you told me, everybody knows that stuff. Tell me something new, right? I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease or one who is secure or one who is successful, there is contempt Hatred, derision for misfortune, for pain and suffering. It is ready for those whose feet slip. In other words, for those who mess up. The tents of robbers, though, are at peace. And those who provoke God are secure. Those who bring their God in their hand. And then he goes through the... All right, now let's go down to 13 and let's look at 4 and 5. Straightforward talk to them. Based on all that they've told them, he summarizes it and says, As for you, you whitewashed with lies. Your, your lies look white. They look clean. They look right. They look righteous. But there's death inside of them. You worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent. Oh, then you'd find wisdom. All right, then let's go over to uh, 20. Well, let's do 12 just to kind of put the nail in the coffin here. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. I'm not the one sitting on the ashes. (laughs) What you say sits on the ashes. And your defenses are defenses of clay. There's nothing to them. All right, 20. Only grant me two things. He's talking to God now. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Here's the first thing I ask. Withdraw your hand far from me. Let not terror or dread fear of you terrify me. Dread is fear on steroids. So let not dread of you terrify me. Then I'll call and I will answer Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you will reply. Here's the second thing he asked for. How many are my iniquities and my, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. If it's about that, show me. That's what he's saying. All right. Now let's go over to 14. Let's look at, uh, let's go down to four. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There's not one. That's weird. Let's go down to seven. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. 
Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump dies in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. Now let's go over to 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call, I would answer you, you would long for the work of your hands. That literally means you would long for me. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to the wonder of your word and the wonders that are in your word. Oh, Lord, that you would speak is an infinite mercy. And, oh, Lord, that you would continue to speak through your word is an astounding mercy. So speak, Lord, Uh, speak. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Job's three friends all go to the same church, okay? They all go to the same church. They all believe the same stuff. They all have the same theological system. They all have the same doctrinal statement. If you were to go to this church and say, what's your vision statement, your philosophy of ministry, your doctrinal statement, your confession, they'd all pull out the same one, all right? Uh, they all look at life through the same earthly lens. Remember, there's a contrast between lenses taking place here. We got the heavenly lens in chapter 1 through 2. Now we're off on the earthly lens. What does the earthly lens see? Okay. Now, they also have the same deepest trust. In other words, the, in their innermost being where their heart rests, where their heart relies where their heart deeply rejoices in for their security, for their safety, for their success, for their happiness, for their salvation, for their self-validation. Same place. Okay, so these three friends all go to the same church. They just sit in different pews. They look at it from just a slightly different angle each time. We get a new look at the same stuff, okay? Job calls their church the church of traditional religion. The Bible, as it moves on through the centuries after Job, it starts calling their church the church of traditional religion. Old-time religion, right? And here's what they come across. What traditional religion believes there is a purpose to pain. That's what verse 5 is talking about. In the thought, look at verse 5, in the thought, in other words, in the beliefs, in the doctrinal statement, in the theological confessions and standards of one who is at ease, of one who is secure, of one who's safe, of one who's successful, the thought of the one at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. In other words, there is a hatred, a derision, a despising of pain and suffering. Why? Well, because pain and suffering, it, pain and suffering is ready for those whose feet slip. (laughs) Because pain and suffering is ready for those who blow it, those with bad piety, 
those with a bad performance. Okay? So here's what we got. To Job's three friends, Job's pain is a ready punishment for his bad performance. Now remember, Eliphaz started it off by saying, you know, Job, uh, your, your piety, your bad performance is just slight. And Job's like, if it's slight to reap the reward of this grand pain... Holy mackerel, right? That was his response to Eliphaz. Bildad comes in and says, no, no, no. It's not slight. It's severe. He has a severe bad performance. He has a severe bad piety. And then Job responds to him. And then remember, Zophar comes in and says, no, no, no. It's not slight. It's not severe. It's secret. And God will find you out, Job. Right? So what we got here is this cosmic scale and all human performance is put into the scale and it's measured perfectly precisely perfunctory what kind of performance is it if it is a bad performance bad piety it will produce pain and suffering that's the just reward if it's a good performance and it's good piety it will produce prosperity that's the proper reward because we know how else does a just god work How else does a just world work? In fact, Chicken Little would be right. The sky is falling if this thing gets messed up. If all of a sudden, a bad performance and bad piety starts producing prosperity, or if a good performance and good piety produces pain, sky's falling. So the most secure people, the most successful people in the world, the ones who are most at ease with God, with themselves, with, with others, in their marriages, in their families, in their workplace, in their businesses, in their community relationships, in their stuff and their possessions, the ones who are most successful, the most at ease, the most secure are the ones who are most improved. If you are improving, you are secure. If you are improving, you are successful. If you are improving, you are at ease. Right? So Job's suffering, Job's pain is proof that he's not an improving person. He's not getting better and better. He's getting worse. So Job's suffering or his pain proves that he's an inferior person. Look at verses 2 through 3. No doubt you are the people, right? And wisdom will die with you, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Getting that? Job's suffering and pain proves he's earned an inferior status. In other words, verse 4, I am a laughingstock to my friends. In other words, I'm less than in the eyes of my friends. I'm small in the eyes of my friends. I'm inferior in the eyes of my friends. Well, Joe goes to first church. He's a leader in first church. He's talented and he's gifted. He gets a lot done. He's sought a lot, sought out a lot by others. Uh, But he struggles privately with bouts of anxiety and bouts of depression. 
But he's got a problem. Joe won't tell anyone about this because he fears being looked at as inferior to those he goes to church with, those he leads with, those he ministers with, and those he ministers to. He fears dropping in status and recognition and respect in the eyes of others. So what does Joe do? Well, he stuffs it. What else do you do? He just buries it down deeper inside of him and his own resources. And so he further isolates himself. He further distances himself from real friendships and real community. He further puts barriers in the way or puts himself in the way of what God's doing in his life. Right? Because the purpose of pain in traditional religion is to improve you by making you feel inferior. Now, Jill, she juggles more than the president of the United States. She juggles the life of her husband, her children, the church, her friends, the home, her work. She juggles everyone's schedules, everyone's meals, everyone's needs, right? She's exhausted. She's worn out. She's lacking sleep. And so one day she confides in her church friends and she says, listen, I'm grouchy, I'm grumpy, I'm stressed, and I'm worn out. And she confides in her friends and she says, I just, I feel disconnected to my husband. She confides to her friends and she says, you know, I just feel spiritually numb in my relationship with God. So her concerned friends get together and they come up with a plan and they talk on the phone and they email and Skype and Facebook and Twitter. Did I miss anything? Text. They got it. Yeah, text. Got it all, man. They do it. They are on it. And this is what they come up with. They come up with a time management calendar to help her with her stressed life. All right. And the second thing with respect to their husband, they just start exhorting her and encouraging her and teaching her uh, to be a better Proverbs 31 woman. And then the last thing they do for their relationship, her relationship with God, they said, listen, pray to God, ask God to show you what sin is in your life that's getting in the way of your relationship with God? Why? Because the purpose of pain in traditional religion is to improve you. First, by making you feel inferior. Second, by forcing out of you a better performance. Okay? Now, Job rejects this outright. Now, remember, if, if, if we would have caught Job back in chapter 3, back in chapter 6 and 7, back in his, de, his real debilitating depression and his real debilitating brokenness, he probably wouldn't say the things he's going to say to these guys. But he's starting to get his, his sea legs under him. Something's changing in 12 through 14 for Job. And because he's changing, he's got a little more moxie. Because he's changing, he's got a little more stability. Because he's changing, he's going to outright say, you're wrong. Look at verse 6. The tents of robbers are at peace. 
And those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hands. Job is saying, if bad piety produces pain or does not produce peace, then why are the terrorists that murdered all my servants, robbed from me my very livelihood, why are they sitting right now in their tents just eating, drinking, and being merry? Why are they at ease? Why are they at peace? Why are they now successful with my stuff? He's not done. He takes his hammer out one more time and he goes through verses 13 through 25. And this is where we talked about pulling out the cosmic power of God in action. Now he's already done it in 9 through 10. So now he's pulling it out with a different twist. He's going to take the cosmic power of God in 9 and 10. He, he unleashed it on the natural sphere of life earth or land, sea and sky. Remember all the pictures, the metaphors and, and the waves, you'd ride the waves and knock the waves down, right? And he would, is in the heavens and controlling the sky and the heavens. And then on the land, he was in charge of everything. All right. Now he's taking God's power in action and he's unleashing it in the human realm of life, the relational realm, all of our web of relationships the way we relate to each other and who we relate to. And he covers every single human relationship in the ancient Near East, which means every single human relationship in the 21st century, right? And what he does is he starts cataloging in all these relationships, he starts cataloging pain in all these relationships. It's relentless. You want him to stop, but he does it. And here's what happens. He does, he catalogs pain hitting every human relationship, counselors, judges, kings, priests, good people, gifted speakers and teachers, leaders and princes, princes, I guess princesses as well, corporate nations and communities, and then specific individual people. And in the, the catch, in his cataloging of all this pain is this, pain hits everyone, good and bad. The purpose of pain, Job is saying, cannot be self-improvement. Can't be. Because pain is no respecter of persons. Because pain hits the good and the bad equally. Because there is no moral pattern to pain. That's his point. Now, the majority of us inside the church live... Like there is a purpose to pain and it is self-improvement, right? We tend to live that way. Let's be honest. You do that to yourself. When you suffer, the first thing you look for is what needs to be improved. Where have I messed up? And you either find blame with yourself and you loathe yourself. You find blame with God and you loathe him, right? Or you turn to your spouse, you turn to the nearest loved one and you blame them. Someone's going to get the blame, right? Blame your daddy, sweetie. It's his fault. Now, the majority of us outside the church, however, we're not looking for the purpose of pain being self-improvement. For those of us outside the church, we're saying there is no purpose to pain. It's a monster. Anne Voskamp, the author of the best-selling book, 1,000 Gifts, you all have seen it? All right, she was interviewed recently, and she said that she grew up in a non-church-going family. Now, she grew up in, in rural, midwestern 
America. Now, that's a rarity to not go to church in Midwestern Bible Belt. It'd be like someone in Waco not going to church. So the interviewer goes, you didn't grow up going to church? You know? And she said, well, why? This is what she says. My sister was 18 months old and crushed by a farm delivery truck in our family's farmyard in front of my mother who was standing at the kitchen sink. My father never shadowed a church door after that. His line was, if there really was a God, he was definitely asleep at the wheel on that day. The death of her sister was her very first memory. The interviewer goes on to say, well, how did that shape your life? Well, let's start with the dad, right? The dad hates God. The dad says God doesn't exist. The dad doesn't take the church to family. Well, let's start with the marriage. Then she works in the marriage, and she says the destructive, the hurricane that was unleashed in my parents' marriage because of this death is astounding. Can you imagine? Who do you think the husband blamed for that? I know who I'm blaming. You were at the kitchen sink looking out the window? Destroyed their marriage. And then the interview said, well, what about you? What happened to you? And this is what she says. My, she says, my whole life was shaped by that event. She says, quote, my life was formed by fear from that day forward. In college, she had these uncontrollable anxiety bouts. She struggled with all kinds of fears. Uh, and so when you read that book, 1,000 Gifts, you know what she's talking about? We'll talk, uh, what she's talking about is the grace of God being present in her life now, believing the gospel now in 1,000 ways. It's a great book. For a lot of us, pain is a monster. It's an uncontrollable monster that drags you away, kicking and screaming into the darker depths that you don't want to go, right? Now, is this it? Is this all there is? We got pain and we can relate to it in two ways. Improve ourselves or lose ourselves. Improve ourselves, we say, listen, I... If I am improving, I will be more secure with God, more secure with myself, and more secure with other people. That's it. That's what needs to happen. Or we say, lose ourselves. There's nothing but pain. So be very, very afraid. For 12 chapters, Job says no to those two options. For 12 chapters, he resists it. He fights it. He says no, no. He's like, it's like he's being tortured and tormented by something even behind the human beliefs. And of course, we know what's going on because the hammer of doom coming directly from the hand of the Satan hasn't stopped. It's now behind these friends, right? And so what's going on is that we're seeing that Job is saying, no, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to stuff my pain and I'm not going to surrender to my pain. I'm not going to go for improving myself because that's what stuffing's all about. 
The goal of religion is to improve yourself. That's not where I'm going. And the goal of your religion is to lose yourself or surrender to it. That's not where I'm going. Instead, he prayed his pain. For 12 chapters, we see him praying his pain. And then all of a sudden, something happens in chapter 12 through 14. In the midst of praying his pain, something happens. Something happens. In the process of pain, something happens. Do you see it? It shows up in verse. Th- it shows up in chapter thirteen, out of nowhere for a split second. It's like, really? Where did you come from? What? How did that get here? Thirteen five. Though he slay me, I will still. I will yet hope in him. Where, where, where did that come from? I mean, it just comes out of nowhere. It has no context. It just. But that's kind of like pain, isn't it? In the process of pain, there's a lot going on. And then there's these, these appearances, these sudden appearances of light. And they might go away. And then they come back. And they might go away. And that's just what happened. Why? What's going on? Something's happening in the process of pain. Something's happening while he's praying pain. No, don't miss this. In chapter 14, while he's praying his pain, here's what happens. Now, it's... It might seem small to you, but it is like the first time, it's like on a bleak, dark room, some light came in. And here it goes. We start with chapter 14, verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Now you're saying, he's just asking a question. He's asking a question about who can take something that's unclean and make it clean. And he came to the conclusion, there is no one. And you're thinking, well, that's not helpful. But the real The real perspective is that that is extremely helpful because he just asked an impossible question. His pain is now pushing him to places he's never been before. His pain has now pushed him to territory and asking questions that were never in his mind and his heart before. He is now at least asking the question, can there be someone that can take something that's unclean and make it clean? Is there? Can the impossible happen? He's not done. He goes at verse 7 through 9. For there is hope for a tree, if the tree is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that shoots will not cease, though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, and yet at the scent of water... Did you catch that? It's not that someone comes over like my mom does every day and waters their plants. When plants come to our house, they scream, no, because they know they'll never get fed. They know they'll never get water. They always die at our house. But at my mom's house, they thrive because they get the water, right? But here, can you see what's happening? The water hasn't hit the plant. It just sniffs the scent of water, life. Verse 14 through 17, if a man dies, shall he live again? Shall he live again? I mean, here, do you see the question? He's asking these questions. He's, he's gone to places he never would have gone before, if not for his pain. All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. Renewal? What? Now he's talking about waiting for renewal? He's talking about Maybe there's a resurrection from the dead. 
And then he says this, you would call, I would answer you, you would long for the work of your hands. In other words, you would long for me. For then you would number my steps, you would not keep watch over my sin, my transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover all my iniquity. It sounds like someone who realizes they're right with God because of what he does. So do you see it? Do you see what's happening in the process of pain? It's small, but it's there. It's stumbling, but it's there. It's struggling, but it's there. The purpose of pain is not to improve you. The purpose of pain is to improve your faith. There it is. If the purpose of pain is to improve you, then it's just basically saying to you, look, bud, you need to trust more and more in yourself. Let's get it going. But if the purpose of pain is to improve your faith, then it's trusting more and more in another. Now we're moving somewhere. Faith in another is Jesus becoming bigger, brighter, and better to you. Faith in another is going deeper in your rest and reliance and rejoicing in Jesus. It's going to places you've never been before. It's taking you to new places. Those of us that think faith is static, the scripture says, what? Those of us that think that, you know, we get one knowledge of God or we get one kind of view of God in terms of the gospel and then you're fine and you're settled and then you just live your life and you get on with your sanctification, get on with your spiritual disciplines. The scripture goes, what? The scripture says, no, 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 no. It's faith from first to last. And that means it's faith in the middle. The Christian life is a life of believing the gospel in bigger and brighter and better ways continually. Now, the purpose of pain is for real genuine trust to touch another. And when that happens, simultaneously, change happens. So we'll never know the cosmic purposes of pain. We won't. Theologians call it the hidden will of God, the um, secret will of God. We're not going to know right now today in all the pain that goes on in our life and goes on in your loved ones. You cannot draw line from pain to the secret counsel of God and say, aha, this is why it happened. That, that's not open to us. God in the scriptures and Job doesn't let it know to us, but he does reveal one major purpose that he wants all his people to hang on to and he wants all his people to hold on to with all their worth and he reveals it in the heavenly places the first time and now Job actually gets the revealed plan for the first time. And that is the purpose of pain is to improve your faith. The purpose of pain is for God to make himself more and more and more and more real to you. 
So God is saying, no matter what pain comes your way, no matter what the cosmic purposes are that are involved, that are in my triune heart with the Trinity, and that we converse over and we talk about with infinite, unfathomable depths of knowledge and wisdom and perfection and love, stuff you're not going to know about, no matter what comes your way, I will make myself more real to you, I promise. I will grow your faith in me, I promise. Now, we've got to end here. Here's how we're going to end. Did you notice that all the things we looked at, that Job is trusting God for something impossible, right? We've already seen about the something beyond death, because death is the ultimate pain, right? There's nothing beyond that. That's the monster of all monsters. And Job says, though he slayed me, yet I will hope in him. So now Job's starting to talk about something bigger and brighter and beyond death, all right? Then we turn to... Uh, him trusting for something beyond his personal uncleanliness, beyond his bad record, beyond his messes, beyond his impiety, beyond his improvement. He starts trusting for something clean that transcends his uncleanliness. That's big, right? And then he starts trusting God for something beyond devastation and loss and desperation. Remember, the tree gets eliminated. The tree gets cut off at the roots. This once grand tree with branches and extending uh, fruit, who knows what kind of tree it was, that gave shade and shelter to all of God's creatures in that area, gets cut down. Utter devastation. Utter loss. There's something beyond that. From that devastation, from that loss, the scent, the sniff of water, new life starts coming from the tree. And then finally, we, feel, we see where it's all going towards, and it happens in ver- at the last, that last verse of 17. Um, He's trusting God for someone to show up. He wants a direct audience with God. And that's where the book's moving now. So years later, someone does show up. And this someone doesn't come to teach and encourage self-improvement. This someone doesn't come to exhort and coach you to improve yourself. This someone comes to live, die, and rise again for those who can't improve themselves. So in your pain, you trust him for the impossible. You trust Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you. So now you can find your ease and your security and your rest in the midst of pain and, and safety in what he does for you, not in what you do for him big difference if you trust in what you do for him you will not experience ease you will not experience comfort you will not experience peace you will not experience security you will fall to pieces now years later someone shows up to conquer the monster of pain right in his death resurrection in his perfect life he takes pain by the throat slams him to the ground, and with that hymn we just sung, puts his foot on his throat and conquers him. He's not a monster anymore. He can't drag you away. He conquered it so well that he has taken the pain now and sanctified it. So when pain comes your way, it's not to punish and pound you to pieces by a monster that drags you away. He's now sanctified it so that this pain actually has a purpose. 
to grow you deeper in trusting God. Faith improvement, not falling to pieces. Amen.